Chapter 50 Ahab's Boat and Crew, Fadala. Who would have thought it, Flask? cried Stubb. If I had but one leg, you would not catch me in a boat unless maybe to stop a plug hole with my timber toe. Oh, he's a wonderful old man. I don't think it's so strange after all on that account, said Flask. If his leg were off at the hip, now, that would be a different thing. That would disable him. But he has one knee, a good part. And good part of the other left, you know. I don't know that, my little man. I never yet saw him kneel. Among whale-wise people, it has often been argued whether, considering the paramount importance of his life to the success of the voyage, it is right for a whaling captain to jeopardize that life in the active peril of the chase. So Tamburlaine soldiers often argued, with tears in their eyes, whether that invaluable life of his ought to be carried to the thickest of the fight. But with Ahab, the question assumed a modified aspect. Considering that with two legs man is a hobbling weight in all times of danger, considering that the pursuit of whales is always under great and extraordinary difficulties, that every individual moment, indeed, then comprises a peril, under these circumstances, it is wise for any maimed man to enter a whale boat in the hunt. As a general thing, the joint owners of the Pequod must have plainly thought not. Ahab well knew that although his friends at home would think little of his entering a boat in certain comparatively harmless vicissitudes of the chase, for the sake of being near the scene of action and giving his orders in person, yet Captain Ahab to have a boat actually apportioned to him as a regular headsman in the hunt, above all for Captain Ahab to be supplied with five extra men, as the same boat's crew, he well knew that such generous conceits never entered the heads of the owners of the Pequod. Wherefore he had not solicited a boat's crew from them, nor had he in any way hinted his desires on that head. Nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own touching all that matter. Until Cabico's published discovery, the sailors had little foreseen it, though to be sure when, after being a little while out of port, all hands had concluded the customary business of fitting the whaleboats for service, when some time after this Ahab was now and then found bestirring himself in the matter of making thole-pins with his own hands for what was thought to be one of the spare boats, and even solicitously cutting the small wood skewers, which when the line is running out are pinned over the groove of the bow. When all this was observed to him, and particularly his solicitude in having an extra coat of sheathing in the bottom of the boat, as if to make it better withstand the pointed pressure of his ivory limb, and also the anxiety he evinced in exactly shaping the thighboard, or clumsy cleat, as it is sometimes called, the horizontal piece in the boat's bow for bracing the knee against the darting or stabbing at the whale, when it was observed how often he stood up in that boat with his solitary knee fixed in the semicircular depression in the cleat, and with the carpenter's chisel gouged out a little here and straightened in a little there, all these things, I say, had awakened much less interest and curiosity all that time. But almost everybody supposed that this particular preemptive heedfulness in Ahab must only be with a view to the ultimate chase of Moby Dick. For he had already revealed his intentions to hunt that mortal monster in person. But such a supposition did by no means involve the remotest suspicions as to any boat's crew being assigned to that boat. Now, with the subordinate phantoms, what wonder remained soon waned away, for in a whaler wonder soon wane. Besides, now and then such unaccountable odds and ends of strange notions come up from the unknown nooks and ash holes of the earth to man these floating outlaws of whalers, 
and the ships themselves often pick up such queer castaway creatures found tossing about the open seas on planks, bits of wreck, or whaleboats, canoes blown off Japan junks, and whatnot, that Beezlebub himself might climb up aside and step onto the cabin to chat with the captain, and it would not create an unsubduable excitement in the forecastle. But be all this as it may, certain it is that while the subordinate phantoms soon found their place among the crew, though still as it was someone distinct from them, yet that hair-turban Fadala remained a muffled mystery to the last. Whence he came to a mannerly world like this, by what sort of unaccountable tie he soon evinced himself to be linked with Ahab's peculiar fortunes, nay, so far as to have some sort of half-hinted influence, heaven knows, but it might have been even authority over him. All this none knew. But one cannot sustain an indifferent air concerning Fadala. He was such a creature as civilized, domestic people in the temperate zone only see in their dreams, and that but dimly, but the like of whom now and then glide among the unchanging Asiatic communities, especially the Oriental Isles and the east of the continent, whose insulated, immemorial, unalterable countries, which even in these modern days still preserve much of the ghostly aboriginalness of Earth's primal generations, when the memory of the first man was a distant recollection, and all men his descendants, unknowing hence he came, eyed each other as real phantoms, and asked of the sun and moon why they were created and to what end, when though, according to Genesis, the angels indeed consorted with the daughters of men, the devils also, added the uncanonical rabbins, indulged in mundane amours. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always... Thanks for listening.